and thank you all for making a difference, coming together as a community to bless and impact our neighbors. Uh, it means a lot for this community, but also for following Jesus, because that's one of his greatest things that he tells us to do, is to serve others. Well, today we're in a series on Advent, and last week John began a new series called The Star of Wonder, and he talked about the wonder of something new. And this week, the second week of Advent, we're going to talk about something different, the wonder of those people. Anybody know what I mean by those people? Okay, a couple of you do. A couple of you do. You may have shared a table over Thanksgiving with some of those people. The ones who get under your skin, they frustrate you. You don't understand their interactions. You don't understand where they're coming from. They have these bizarre thoughts, beliefs. Maybe they're politically different than you, religiously different than you. And they just get in underneath your skin and they know how to push all those buttons. Well, we're heading into another holiday. Another opportunity to share a table with some of those people. Pew Research found that 86% of us plan to gather with extended family for Christmas or Christmas Eve. Anybody going to spend some time with extended family over Christmas? Okay, a lot of heads, a lot of hands. Um, How long do you think, on average, people can spend with their family before they need a break? Two hours. What else? That's long for some of you guys, it sounds like. Two minutes. On average, maybe not you, but maybe the person next to you can spend a little longer. How long do you think, on average? A weekend, three days. Man, three hours and 54 minutes. Three hours and 54 minutes, on average, people can spend with their family before they need a break. You can judge yourself based on whether you're over that or under that. Uh, It's not my job to do that. Now, the question is, uh, another part of this survey found that one in four of those surveyed have actually hidden in a relative's house to get a break. <laughs> Anybody done that? Okay. Where? So I'm heading up to, to New York likely for Christmas with my in-laws and my, my wife's family. Where are some of the best places to hide in the house? In the car? The bathroom. Somebody said that in first service. I was like, yes, that's true because you can be in there for a long time. Nobody's going to be like, is everything all right in there? You know, everybody's like, all right, just give them the space. Where else? The closet. Hopefully it's... a Under the bed? Man, you're really trying to get away. Excellent. That's great. Well, if you didn't know where to hide, you now have some ideas for your holiday gathering. Um, The poll found some of the top concerns. Lack of privacy. Like you're surrounded by all these people. Family just getting on my nerves. Drama between family members. This feeling that I'm imposing myself on them. And this one's big for me. The house is too loud and too busy. Anybody else too loud and too busy? It's too many people. Growing up, I grew up in Northern Virginia, and every holiday was pretty much just my immediate family, the four of us. Myself, my sister, who's nine years older, my dad, and my mom. Always just the four of us. And my mom had a sister nearby and a brother nearby, and I had cousins nearby. My dad had a sister nearby, and some cousin, you know, I had some other cousins on his side all within like five to 10 miles of us. But we were always just the four of us. And talking it through, it was like everybody just wanted their own tradition. Nobody wanted to be inconvenienced by each other. Every now and then my one cousin might come over, Ryan. He's six months older than I am. We were very close. He might come over occasionally. But almost always, it was just the four of us. My dad had a sister in Falls Church, five miles away. And he had a rough relationship with her. 
And there was a lot of separation. So she's got two kids that are about my sister and my age, right in between us. I didn't meet them till I was 20 years old. They lived five miles away. The tension was so bad between him and his sister that when my grandma, their mom, would come and visit, and it was time for like the handoff of the grandma between siblings, um, my dad's sister would stop in the road and honk to announce her presence and make my 80-year-old grandma walk down a 50-yard gravel driveway to get in her car because she wasn't even going to set foot in the yard of my dad's house. Like the tension was there. Anybody have tension in their family like that? Like you can't even be in the same room with somebody. They're your family, but they're still those people. The people we want to keep distance from, the people we don't want to be around, we don't want to have a conversation with. Well, how can we have better interactions with them? And I think Advent, the second week of Advent, as we talk about peace, has something to say about healing those relationships because God wants to do something new this holiday season. This peace can extend to those people in our family. The ones who get under our skin, they confuse us, they irritate us. If you've ever walked away from a holiday meal or a gathering, just frustrated, angry at how things went, you're just like, man, God, I just want a normal family. Advent has something to say about it. Today's passage, Camilla read it earlier, isn't traditionally lumped in with the standard Christmas passages. But this story happens on the eighth day after Jesus' birth. Like he is just week one of his life. And there's something in this story that sets the trajectory for his mission and his purpose here on earth that has huge implications for us and how we see those people. Let's read it, Luke 2, 25 through 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, something you need to know about Simeon. Simeon is a Jewish man living in Jerusalem. He's deeply religious. He's devout. He's following the ways of Judaism. He's in the temple regularly. He is looking to connect with God, but he's in a city that is culturally Greek. It's filled with Greek philosophy and thought, a little bit different than Jewish thought. Jerusalem at that time had been fully Hellenized. They've adopted the ways of Greek thought and philosophy. Not only that, it was ruled by Rome. So you have a Jewish man in a culturally Greek city ruled by a Roman dictator. There were a lot of opportunities to interact with those people. The ones that he wouldn't share a table with normally, the ones that would look down on him for his beliefs, his, his opinions, his ways of living, who said, hey, you're not fully welcome here. He was constantly interactive with them. Jerusalem was a very complex and divided city, much like D.C. And what is on Simeon's heart? He's looking for something very specific, the consolation of Israel, his people. He's looking for comfort, for healing, for hope, for deliverance of his people from those people, from Rome, from the Greek way of living and thinking. But what happens when Simeon's heart is moved by God's spirit? We have on his heart this desire for his deliverance for his people. 
But God's spirit does something different. Let's look at verse 27. Simeon's moved by the spirit. He went into the temple courts when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him, Jesus, in his arms and praised God saying, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now picture this. Mary and Joseph take in their firstborn child, Jesus, eight days old, into the temple. And they're walking around. They haven't even gotten to like the part, the center part of the temple yet. They're just kind of out in the big atrium, if you will, the lobby area, the big open for everybody area. And this older man comes along and is like so excited about their baby that he goes over and he takes the baby. What would you do? Mary and Joseph, firstborn baby, eight days old. Imagine you walk into church here on a Sunday morning and some stranger walks up to you. He's like, I love your baby. And they take the baby and they start talking about the baby. It's a little weird, right? When Eli was born, Joanne and I had a party to celebrate his birth. There he is. Look at that little Eli, a little over eight years ago. Um, He's our oldest. And this was the first time that my mom had been back in the States for a number of years. She lives in Israel. And because of that, she came to see Eli for the first time. And it had been a number of years since I'd seen her. And that also meant that it had been a number of years since her family had seen her. And so we had this party. Eli's about two months old. And we bring in all this extended family. Some from Joanne's, but mainly from my family. And we have some interesting characters in my family, we'll say. Maybe you have somebody like this. A relative that doesn't really pick up on the nonverbal cues. Anybody? They don't pick up on the verbal cues. They're very direct. They know where you stand on a number of things, but they're still just blatantly in your face about where they stand. You got to love them, right? Well, we have, I have this one family member. They kept pushing Joanne to hold the baby. And Joanne's walking around. She's passing off the baby to family members. She's sharing him. But it is our firstborn child, right? And like, oh, I still love this little thing. And this one family member of mine just kept walking around to her, saying, hey, give me the baby. Give me the baby. Let me hold the baby. Give me the baby. I think it was out of a good place in the sense of like wanted to give mom a break and let her, if I were given the benefit of the doubt, like letting her deal with the party piece. But about six or seven times, it got kind of old. Give me the baby. Give me the baby. And all of a sudden, they walk over and they say, give me the the baby. And they go to take the baby. And that's when Joanne turned into someone I'd never seen before. (laughs) I didn't know what a mama bear was. But I saw it in that moment. I I was scared to death. She rose up and said, this is my child. I am going to hold him. I picture Mary and Joseph doing something similar. And I've seen this look, this mom bear look at the table sometimes. Someone says something or does something that is met with a fierce look. And it's immediately known at that moment that there's division, that there's an us versus them, right? This is what Simeon experiences on a daily basis with those people, Rome. 
the ones who are suppressing and ruling over Israel, there's that common look of it's us versus them. Rome looking down on the Jews saying, those people have it wrong. They're not worth it. They believe wrong. They act wrong. They think wrong. And they're not welcome at the table. But despite what's in Simeon's heart, his desire for the consolation of Israel, did you catch what he actually says? Because God's spirit moves on, it, on Simeon. And there's a, kind of a bringing together of Simeon's heart and God's heart where God says, okay, let's bring something into alignment. Look what Simeon is hoping for, verse 27. The consolation of Israel. But what does he say in verse 30? My eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for where? In the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to whom? The Gentiles. Those people. The ones that Simeon cannot stand, the Romans, are the Gentiles. The way of Greek thought and philosophy is the way of the Gentiles. They are those people. God is declaring that there is hope for them. That there is life for them. The ones who don't act, talk, think, or worship like Simeon. The ones they don't share a table with. The ones who rule over Israel are actually recipients of God's good news. God's heart brings Simeon's heart into alignment and says, those people are worth everything. Now it's here that we get a glimpse of a new idea. It's the wonder of those people. See, God wants to reveal himself to them, but more than that, there's something in those people that God wants to use to reveal something in us. Look at the last statement from Simeon, verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled. Another way to translate that Greek word is they were shocked. They were amazed at what he had said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul to woe. I was confused reading this in the sense that we have this amazing picture that Simeon proclaims, Jew and Gentile coming together, a light for the Gentiles, revelation to the Gentiles, hope to those people. And then we get to this passage and Simeon talks about how divisive Jesus will be. I thought he was bringing people together. How can he be divisive? How can he cause the falling and rising of many when he's actually here to bring people together? But it's the unity of Jew and Gentile. People who wouldn't typically be in the same room together. They wouldn't share a table together. It's their unity that of, of Jesus that is so countercultural. Culture, all natural way of, of living and acting is to, to kind of isolate with the people that act, think, and talk like us, to be around like-minded people. But Jesus comes on and says, no, I'm going to take these two people and I'm going to bring them together. And it's that idea that is divisive. Because nobody wants to do that. It's counter-cultural, but it's the message of the kingdom of God. And it challenged everyone around him. People didn't like it. 
Last week, Pastor John shared a quote from Walter Badgehot, a British economist. He says, one of the greatest pains to human nature is the pain of a new idea. This was a new idea. Jesus introduces unity among two people that should never be brought together under normal circumstances. Look at what Paul writes about Jesus's mission on earth, Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Basically, those people were brought near. The ones who were far away, the ones we want to keep at arm's distance away from us have been brought near. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one, Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave, free, as Paul says in other places. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Some of us need that dividing wall of hostility torn down in our families, right? His purpose, Jesus' purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Jesus comes along and he tears down the dividing walls of ethnicity, social status, political bias, religious accolades, the things that typically separate us and tear us apart from family members and, and neighbors, the things that push us to the extremes. Jesus comes and he tears those things down. It's the greatest thing to happen in history. And the greatest thing that happens in history is not reserved for one person or one type of person. It does not favor one or the other. It does not set boundaries and push away those people. This new idea was completely countercultural to Rome. Rome in its day valued power. It basically said, if you've got power, you never serve someone under you. You don't see them as human. You don't treat them as human. If they don't agree with you, if they don't act like you, you can disregard them. And Jesus turns it on his head and comes to those people first and says, blessed are you. And next year, we're gonna begin a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And as I begin kind of looking and reading out in it, the, the first Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. I've always heard that in the sense of, if you are poor in spirit, if you are meek, then you will be blessed. But the group that Jesus is talking to, they're already poor. They already have no standing. And Jesus is coming, not saying, if you do this, you'll be blessed. He's saying, no, the ones who are at the bottom are already blessed because he's coming to them first. He's bringing them good news. He's drawing near those people that we say, you're not worth it. Turns it upside down. When our natural way of doing things is to push those people away, Jesus challenges us to draw near to them. Draw near to the ones who are least like us because that's where we were. In Ephesians 2, he says, while you were far away, we were all once far away from God. And Advent is the reminder that he chose to draw near to us, to bring us in. Look again at Luke 2.35. Purpose of Jesus' is coming is so that the hearts of many will be revealed. It's actually in the presence of those people that kind of our faith, our heart, our beliefs are truly revealed. You're never more aware of what you're truly like than when you're around that family member that knows how to push your buttons, right? Like when you get around that person that's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna say this. You know, something in us kind of rises up and we're like, whoa, where did that come from? I didn't know I could say that. I didn't know I could do that. 
we become a different person, right? Around some of those people that get underneath our skin. Some of those family members really know how to get us going. Or maybe we're just showing a fuller version of ourselves. I have a really nice buddy. Like He's super nice. He like everybody who meets him immediately likes him. He's thoughtful. He's generous. He, he, he's really just positive. A lot of times he's always trying to encourage. He's just too nice, too nice. Anybody have a friend that's too nice? Drives me nuts. Like no way anybody should be this nice. No one should be this kind. No one should be this generous. It makes me look really bad. (laughs) So what do I do when I'm around him? And his overwhelming happiness, I balance him out, right? <laughs> now, a little insight to you optimists. We're not pessimists, we're realists, okay, right? You're not a pessimist, you're a realist. So to balance out optimists, sometimes you be real. And you try to bring them down a little bit because that's just, you know, when I'm around them, I'm just instantly put in a bad mood. <laughs> and I don't know why. And I have to step back and say, you know, does being around him make me a worse person? Some people around me may think so. But if I'm honest, he's not causing any of this, right? When I'm around them, I'm revealed. What's truly in my heart is brought out. It's given an opportunity to be seen. And I am confronted with a version of myself that I do not like. What if we could approach those people, the ones who kind of bring out the worst in us with love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness? Relationship be totally different. Here's the thing. I would walk away with fewer regrets. I wouldn't look back being like, man, I can't, I blew it again. I was a jerk. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I'd have fewer regrets, but this can only happen when we allow God first to deal with our own hearts, our own flaws, our own fears, our pride, our impatience, because it's actually in the presence of those people that our weaknesses, our deficiencies are revealed. The good news is that God wants to do something new in you that will help us see something new in those people. Simeon's message about Jesus tells us That's what is in our heart will be revealed. This call for unity to bringing together us versus them and creating unity among very different groups of people, very different family members will reveal what's in our heart, but it's up to us to receive it, to acknowledge the broken places within and to bring our heart into alignment with God who says, yes, let's break down the dividing wall of hostility. Let's bring them together in unity. And that's why the psalmist prays, In Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And then this line gets me every time. Point out anything in me that offends you. That's a hard prayer to pray. Instead of looking at what offends you in the other person, God, point out anything in me that offends you. Too often our focus is on changing those people when God may be using those people to change us. What was at the heart of my dad and my sister's, his sister's division? Why could they not even be in the same neighborhood together? I don't know. He never talked about it. 
He never addressed it. He never confronted it. He never dealt with what was in his heart. He passed away having never reconciled that relationship. Who are those people for you? Who is going to be at your family table or at the house where you'll be spending this, the holidays who just know how to get under your skin? You're already dreading that sense of, oh man, I've got to see them again. And I know they're going to say this or they're going to do that. Who are those people for you? When you're around them, is there something in your heart that is revealed that maybe you'd say, I'm not proud of that? This advent for peace to arrive, let us have the openness of Simeon who allowed God to reveal the thoughts of his heart and bring them into alignment with God's. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you grateful that when we were far away, you drew near to us. God, while we were still enemies, when we hated you, when we wanted to live our own way, you said that person is worth it. You are worth it. God, there's so many people around us that tend to rub us the wrong way and we, we push back, we push away because we don't like what we see. We don't like the interactions and Lord, we confess that there's so many things in us that we don't like seeing. We don't like how it gets us going, how it stirs up the anger, the frustration within us, the impatience. And I ask this holiday season that you would bring us peace. May we accept your light into our hearts and take you in that you might heal the brokenness. Ultimately, that dividing wall and that hostility would be broken down. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing one last song, First Noel. There's a line in this song that says, then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord. We're incredibly diverse in this room. There's people you you don't agree with in this room. But there's one thing that we can come together on. This vision of Jesus that we're all trying to follow and pursue. Peace, healing, unity in Jesus Christ. And what he did over 2,000 years ago began it. And today he can do it again for you. Will you stand and sing with us?